Good day. This is Free City Radio. It is Tuesday, the 1st of December. Thanks for being with us. This is the 18th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. On the show this week, um, I'll be starting with a conversation I had with Yassine Al-Salman, who recently published a book called Text Messages, or How I Found Myself Time Traveling. Um, this is a recent book. It mixes different mediums, graphic arts, poetry, short stories, and comics. Um, it's published by Haymarket Books. And um, Yassine is, of course, also a musician and a rapper uh, known as Narsi. This is his first book of poetry. And um, I called him over the weekend to talk about it. And I wanted to share the conversation here on Free City Radio. Here it is. Well, you know, I never really expected to put out a book this year. I had been writing this stuff over the course of my career and my phone as I was traveling and my several phones that I like upgraded throughout the years and my laptop. But it was these writings that were like almost like diaries that I never really shared publicly. You know, there's a lot more that I didn't put in the book, but um, I felt compelled to share a few of them uh, at some live events that I did with The Intercept with Jeremy Scahill because they, one of them I wrote specifically for the event, but another one I had, I had in the tuck and I, and I used it and the reaction was uh, way different than what it was to my music. Mm. It just felt like it pierced through in a different way, especially the audience that was there, you know? So I got to meet Anthony from Haymarket at one of uh, the events. And obviously, you know, they've released a Naomi Klein book and she was at the event that I was doing in Toronto. And uh, Jeremy works closely with them. So I got the opportunity to sign a deal with them. And at that point, I didn't have a book. You know, it was just a bunch of loose stuff that was all over the place. So it forced me to take all the stuff that I had and create an anthology out of it and then sift through it. And their editors helped me, like, create a narrative out of it. Um, as I was making the book, I pulled out, like, five or six of my favorite books. Uh, one of them being The Prophet by Khalid Gibran. A couple of Marshall McLuhan books just on a design level, not necessarily the content, but also the content, obviously. Um, and it just clicked with me that, you know, the way I approach my musical projects and my video work, I want to also instill that in my book, especially with the medium being finally uh, registered as a publishing house, thanks to Sundas. Um, I wanted to share the ethos of the company through our book. So I reached out to a couple of my close artist friends that deal with technology in their work, and they sent me a whole... You know, they read the book and then they sent me like five or six examples each. And then I sifted those down to what matched certain content in the book and fit it in. So once the design was put together, it made sense. You know, at first it didn't make sense. It was a huge mess. So, um, yeah, man, it was it was a very natural process. It took like a year and a half to, mm -hmm. to put it together. Now, obviously, I didn't expect it to come out in the, at a time like this. But it, it is also like... Um, since we're not flying and since we're all on our phones and on, on our screens more than we've ever been, it was really a timely uh, project, you know? 
you mentioned all the different styles and mediums that exist in the book. Uh, one of them is this comic, which was something new for me to read in terms of your work. I believe it's World War Free. Yeah. Um, that's the graphic that comes right before the comic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the character, I see some relation to you, um, <laughs> possibly. And there's a very cataclysmic event happening in this comic where World War Free almost becomes this daunting term. And, and I'd always associated that with your album as some sort of call for freedom. So seeing that in the comic as this sort of, I, I really thought about this idea of liberation and, and, and you know, it's referenced in regards to um, people defining themselves as liberators, which is really this complex space that I can see related to Iraq's history also. Um, mm. Could you talk a bit about the comic? Yeah, when I was working on the album, one of the promo pieces that I had created to sell CDs, you know, I'm independent, so I, I wanted to like hit different markets. I had worked with um, this artist to create a, a first issue of a five issue story that I had written um, called World War Free, And it's about this professor in the future who lives in Montreal, who's loosely based on me. I was he's a lot more pumped than I am. And, you know, this was before I had my daughter. So it was like a son, a wife and a husband. And they were leaving that day and he had to go teach or whatever. And there's this phenomena similar to anonymous online, but they're called World War Free, right? And they spread messages of like anti-establishment, anti-government. Um, so this professor studies them in the book. And what I wanted to say by the end of the series is that actually, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So even if your intention is to free the world of violence, you know, violence is an innate human, uh, uh, it's a side of, every, of humanity that's going to exist regardless if you take guns away or not. I don't think humans can ever be nonviolent. Um, so towards the end of the arc of the story, which I probably will never get into unless Marvel or DC or somebody cuts me a check, um, is that this World War Free movement ends up becoming a new government and an a actually a, a corrupt one because they start hanging leaders and they start, you know, uh, uh, creating absolute order through the same means that these governments did. So... The, the issue one was filled with a lot of confusion, even like his friend that's in the magazine who's based on El Cid in real life. As you went further into the story, he ends up becoming like a, uh, an informant for the government. And Jamal, the character in the comic book, actually gets hired by World War III outside of his will. He doesn't want to, but he gets held at gunpoint to become their information minister because he knows so much about them and they know about him. So... It was just about this like entangled web of injustice that we're in and like how do you unpack it? Can you even unpack it and make any sense of it at this point in history? Because, you know, you and I have been dealing with these social justice issues for over 20, 20, 25 years now almost, you know, and they haven't changed. They've just become more protracted, more divided, more um, difficult to untie and like, yeah, it feels like an endless struggle and maybe it is. So the comic book was just a reflection of sh uh, a way of showing that in a, in a non earthly 
way. And I, I grew up reading comic books, so I always wanted to make one. And I, I had only made 100 copies at the time. So putting it in the book allows it to travel even further to people. Mm-hmm. Some of your poems in the book also touch on this notion of in-between, both culturally, but also in terms of idealism. And, you know, I, I, I see that throughout your work as, as a poet, as a hip-hop artist, also this sort of in-between space where, you know, I know that you've been linked to these struggles for justice, but there's also this constant understanding to look at things critically, which can be lost sometimes. There's a bunch of different poems that, that were just getting out the book here. Uh, well, some of them I noticed from, from albums, um, like Frame yeah. 2, uh, yeah. which I, I love and I remember from the, the album. And then there was another poem that I found the last verses from Picture of an Arab Man, uh, mm. really striking and spiritual. And one thing I noticed throughout the book is that relationship to spirituality as sort of a guide, you know, which is something we don't see that expressed, uh, expressed that often, especially you know, with a publisher like Haymarket Books, mm. uh, that's a really vulnerable choice to make in terms of expressing your spirituality. Why was that important for you? Well, I think with everything in my book, whether I'm talking about technology, politics, identity, or religion, there's always like a struggle in it and accepting it the way that it's presented to us. So I strongly believe that the digital realm that we exist in now which is separate to our physical realm. You know, it's a, I've said this before, but it's a, it's a consciousness that we all share. It's like a second brain that we all have that we tap into and leave has changed our, our spiritual being, let alone our physical being, let alone our political being, you know? So to juxtapose my relationship to the monoliths that exist in my life with each other was very important in this book. It's not to say that, you know, Islam isn't flawed as a, as a practice, not necessarily a, a spiritual existence, but a practice by man, uh, I would be lying to myself, you know? And it's the same with technology or, or politics. Like every time you put a man in front of something, they tend to skew it and make it a problematic thing, right? So um, Islam has guided my intention in a lot of my work knowing the platforms and the spaces that I've been afforded to speak in, even if they're not on a grandiose level or as big as they could have been or whatever, I've always used it as a guiding light to make my decisions, whether it be where to take my money from or what to say when I'm on stage or what to put into visual creation, because that's really the culture that we live in now, you know, visual culture. So that's why I put it in the book. I think it, it was, it's been a guiding light my whole career. So I, I would be lying to the public if I didn't put it in there, you know? Location is also important uh, in your book. There's a poem dedicated to Iraq, of course. There's that piece on Montreal. But a lot of the book was, as you mentioned at the beginning, written in between, written in between locations. Um, so it seems that specific places are important and they're written about. But also, I really could picture you uh, when you write in the introduction about flying and, and the freedom mentally that you, you experienced or felt during that time. 
above the clouds. Uh, so could you talk about the ways that both like specific places, but also this idea of not being tied to a place drove your work? Yeah, I think a lot of the time, you know, especially in the early 2000s when our identity was really in question, um, you start thinking about nationhood and belonging and like, do I, you know, these like 20 somethings questions that you ask yourself, like, who am I? Where do I belong? What is, what is home? You know? And then in my thirties, I started really thinking about, does that shit even matter? You know, does it really matter to belong to a specific place? And, and can you accept that you don't belong anywhere, but like you, nowhere belongs to you you belong to everywhere you know, if you know what i mean we're gonna be buried in the earth anyway so like we should bow to this planet in a way and not you know not think too much about the borderings and the way that man has navigated it or whatever so when i was on planes these moments of like realizing wow i'm so small let alone our planet is so small uh it made me really reflect on um on just the journeys that our families took between the countries that I speak on in the books. You know, thought a lot about my father and the things he may have lost along the way or my mother, like not let alone luggage, but identity wise and belonging wise and the pain that it might've brought them and how actually my pain is so small compared to theirs, you know? Um, and it's, it's important. I think our generation is a, a one, you know, when you look at belonging to specific countries, when you look at Canada, for example, and you think about their complicit involvement in the destruction of the planet or the apartheid of Palestinians or, you know, these things that we can speak on for now, uh, which might change in the next five, 10 years. And then you look at being from, let's say, living in the Gulf and not being able to speak on those things and it can get you in prison for your opinion or whatever it might be. Um, I'm, am I really free because I can speak about it? Like if I can speak on it, but I can't change it, what's the difference, right? So those are really the questions that I was asking myself while putting this book together. Like I just want to be critical of all sides because no side is perfect and no side is actually better than the other. Like I don't belong to any of these places at the end of the day, you know? Um, yeah, so... Again, it's a form of like a dichotomy, a confusion, a understanding of where I stand, where I stand, not within it, but where I stand in general, you know, and that, that was really the reflection I was trying to look at. Yeah, I mean, two words that came to my mind, both in this conversation, but also reading the book was strength and vulnerability. I found that really striking for for you i i know that you know so much of your work you had to put on a game face and be strong and 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 stand up you know both in terms of uh, asserting your identity and your place in the world of hip-hop but also more generally uh but in this book there's that strength that i know you for but there's also that sense of vulnerability which i i i have heard in your music but I don't know if it's because of the poetry or the style of the book, it came out more strongly. Yeah, I think as I embark on, you know, the, the artistic journey that I'm on, I'm becoming more vulnerable because I'm starting to realize that the strength is, a, like you said, is, a, is a, a protective shield to not fall apart, 
because the things that we've witnessed over the course of the last 20 years, not necessarily face to face, but the things that we, we bear witness to every day on the internet can destroy you. And, and we can't afford to be destroyed. So we keep plowing through it, you know, and it's super unhealthy at the end of the day to witness the death of a child in the hands of a soldier or, or a drone bombing a, a home and not seeing any faces or, uh, you know, the, the vitriol that gets spilled on the internet about race and belonging. And like, it's just, um, it's very painful. And I think I, I was able to face that when I had children, but I still had to be even stronger f for my children because I, I had to hold it down for them and, and keep running through and making money and surviving to put food on the plate. But I'm about to get into my next record right now. Actually, I'm, on Monday, I'm starting to, I'm going to go finish or, or attempt to finish my, my new album. And um, I think it's going to be a, a vulnerable record because I don't want to just put on a front all the time anymore. I and I think many of us feel this vulnerability, but fight through it and try to hide it. But at this point in, at this point in time, especially during this pandemic, which I, I hate using that word now, but especially during this specific year, it's everything is at the forefront. And it's like, we can't lie anymore. You know, we can't lie to each other anymore. Like we see how much our way of living and the, the, the systems of control around us have made us not care about each other. You know, we're not able to sit at home for a month in order to bring everything down to zero and, and be able to have a normal life. We have to be told like, you can't do this now. You can't do this now. We almost don't know how to function without being told what to do. Um, and you could tell man, people don't care about each other. You could tell everybody is selfish. Everybody is an individual. Like everybody thinks on an individual level. And, and that's really like to see that and to see my kids grow up in a world like that has really, really like broke my heart you know so um yeah man you but know you got you got you got to be real the last thing i would just mention is um the book does express collectivity you know and i i know that you have always worked with so many different people uh, you have the illustrators you know you have a bunch of different artists, of course, Slinda Sabrohadi, but also mm -hmm. others, uh, Nick Brovkin, uh, Khaled Albay, you know, mm -hmm. many different um, artists that contributed. I'm sure many people also were involved in different ways in the book. So in, mm -hmm. in some ways, I, I looking through this book and also the, the format of all the different styles um, and also some pages that are almost like posters, your community came through so so despite what you're saying this book also shows the power of of your network i think it's important to you know as you know most of our most of our collective energy comes from our art our artwork it's never been i'm on a call baba thank you Habib. i'm on a call you can come say hi to Amu after um most of our work has been on a collective level when it came to the arts but it's been very hard for us to actualize that outside of the arts. You know, we all live, all the friends of mine that are in my book, 
live all around the world. We've never been in one place at the same time. Uh, so it's a, it's almost like a a wish, a a, uh, a dream, you know, uh, an intention through the book to represent community as it stands now and where it might be if we if we're able to you know make it make it a reality hopefully that was a conversation with yasin al-salman who has published a book recently called text messages or how i found myself time traveling you can find that through haymarket books um, haymarketbooks.org it was a pleasure to speak with yasin here's a track from one of his albums World War Free. This is Epiphany. We push in opposite directions, and I could never free you. Though you're a positive reflection, you're negative when I see through. But will we make it out the door? Blind to each other on the same floor. I believe we could be if we try to leave. But do you ask yourself what you came for? Will you listen to me? Do you ever see me through the door? Will you listen to me? Do you live it fully? Will we ever make it through the door? Different views of the same world The truth will tear the roof off Revolution running through these doors Seeking fire with youth lost Elevated to the next level There's no building till the stress settles The upper floor made you too tall Who will catch you when you fall? Will you listen to me? Do you live it fully? Do you ever see me through the door? Will you listen to me? Do you live it fully? That was Epiphany by Yasina Al-Salman, who we heard from to begin the show. This is Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Now I wanted to share with you a conversation I had just prior to the lockdown uh, that I recorded in Brooklyn. 
This is with Madfai and Sarah, who are two of the key people for Ugly Duckling Press, which is a small press based in Brooklyn uh, that publishes poetry and creative fiction. Often their books are hand-pressed, handmade, hand-printed. They use various old-school printing methods um, right in their Brooklyn studio, uh, which we will hear uh, in this recording. Um, I was in Brooklyn just at the end of February last winter before the pandemic hit, and I recorded this conversation. They still have many ongoing projects, of course, that uh, we hear about here and they've remained active over this past year. One of the projects um, that they have been doing is publishing and also translating lost poets and also poets from different artistic scenes across the Americas. Uh, They have a translation series, which is excellent. I wanted to share the conversation I had with Matvai and Sarah from Ugly Duckling Press, recorded in their space in Brooklyn. I'm at Ugly Duckling Press with Madvai Yankelovich and uh, Sarah Lawson. We're sitting at a table here um, at your beautiful office slash studio slash workspace. And there are tons of boxes. We're in an old factory that's been converted into a book factory, it seems, which is awesome. Uh, Ugly Duckling Press has been around, I think, since about 2000. Uh, 2001. Uh, so that's a long run, 20, 20 years. It's coming up. So, uh, Madhvai, maybe we'll just, because I, I met you a long time ago. So tell us what is Ugly Duckling Press just to start. Uh, yeah, actually, we've been around technically since we date our uh, origins in 93. Oh, wow. With a zine that I did. And then in the late 90s, I met a bunch of people in New York. So um, we started making books and chapbooks and magazines. And so by the time we met, we were already doing um, 6x6 magazine and Emergency Gazette for like okay. theater stuff. And maybe New York Nights was starting up around right after 9-11, um, which was a newspaper we did. Uh, mostly Julian Poirier and others um, did in response to the beginning of the post 9-11 wars and um so yeah it's been around for we celebrated 25 years recently we had a big party (laughs) it was a year ago ago. um and um we're a non-profit you know small press that mostly publishes poetry but has a lot of intersection with performance and arts especially artist books um translation is a big part of our publishing program um we have a collective of 11 editors at the moment um and four of us are here as kind of staff um doing daily work um also everything from writing grants and distributing the books to training our apprentices and um uh, producing, you know, production, printing, all kinds of, all kinds of book work, <laughs> um, and so the editorial collective is all volunteer, but the four staff members are part-time workers, um, and they are also part of the editorial collective. So we, all of us, also are involved with editing projects. I picture program. this like sort of 
machine uh, that is organic too. That's um, sort of moving forward and has all these different um, limbs, you know, uh, different elements, and it's uh, very has an ancient feeling, but also very uh, digital and uh you're producing these beautiful books and it seems like this uh amazing creature ugly duckling press is still going forward there seems to be like almost a physicality that i feel when obviously there's the decision to still print in this era of screens mm. or um but but also like the 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 methodology and the practice seems not just about um, placating to like sort of understandings of what a book should look like mm -hmm. and there's the craft involved but almost feels a bit like an intervention I don't know mm -hmm. if that word works I'm glad that you say that <laughs> that's good that's what we hope I think that, yeah. that kind of feeling might might come up for a reader who encounters the books in a bookstore or sees something a little different and more tactile and yeah. it's a just slightly different experience of the book, yeah, hopefully. And that the design is not standardized. Like, there, there's, even within a series, you know, there's a lot of diversity of uh, you're just aesthetics. Pointing, yeah, you're just pointing to this series. What's going on with this one? <laughs> with the uh, yeah, Senyal? Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, contemporary Latin American poetry in okay. translation. Um, which is has its own um, sort of committee that decides on the texts, but is, I think, always been submission-based. Um, mm -hmm. And this one, in fact, uh, New Moon, is our first trilingual of that series, which is exciting. Um, and I think that we're also starting to look for things that aren't just Spanish, um, okay. but also non-Spanish, Latin American languages, um, just We've done one people who are, you know, kind of doing something experimental. Nice. Yeah, I mean, and that the trilingual one is uh, Tzotzil, Spanish, and English. Okay. And then we have done a Brazilian-Portuguese one, and where we are looking, you know, trying to find... And also, uh, Wings and Gonzalez from Guatemala, he mm -hmm. writes in both Spanish and Garifuna, so like a, a kind of a Creole language. Um, and so there's, yeah, so we were looking for that kind of stuff um, uh, from Latin America. But we also, one of the books that you were pointing at is part of the Lost Literature series, which has a lot of Latin American stuff in it, but isn't mm. that also, mm. that that ranges from like, uh, that series has had French letterist work mm. and um, the republication of Zero to Nine, the magazine that Vito Acconci and Bernard Mayer had in the late 60s. Mm. So, that, and this book, by Omar Cáceres from the 30s from Chile is like you know part of that lost literature series but as you know just like uh, total very different kinds of work and periods of time mostly 20th century avant-garde but from a really various uh, locations and periods and styles there's also a book in there that uh, came out I think in the late 70s and was just out of print for like 30 or some odd years wow. so bringing things back into print um, and that was an experimental novel by uh, Constance Sejong who's by I think uh, more known as like a performance artist and she wrote this one novel in the 70s <laughs> so we were sort of recovering that experimental 
poetry and prose in the context of the Americas tells many stories. Um, those stories continue today. There's a lot of stories that cross borders or don't cross borders. Uh, poetry has often played a role also as time catches up to maybe moments in history that were hidden, especially in the American context. Uh, Chile is an example, of course, but um, many, many others. Um, poets were always central to uh, social, political debate in, in Latin America, but also in the United States. Um, in, in looking at this this sort of, all, all these poems and these very tactile books here at Ugly Duckling Press, it feels like if you could just, uh, I see the Americas and it's almost like you can see another layer of history that mm -hmm. is sort of like outside of the normative frameworks. Mm-hmm. Does does it feel like like for you like that relationship you're in Brooklyn with Latin America, especially at this moment, is important, mm. both contemporary and historic, through poetics, but also through obviously um, all the important political moments in Latin America that artists spoke about. Whether it's mm. a, I mean very well known uh, the. Um, coup in, in Chile in 1973, but also the coup in Bolivia, which has consequences in t until today. Poets were on the ground. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's what you're saying about uncovering is really important to us, and I'm glad that that sense of it comes through. Um, we're certainly not looking for the most published poet or the most <laughs> whether in the US context of emerging writers or in the in the world context uh, uh, of things from the past or from the present um, Latin America, Eastern Europe, etc. Most of the places that we translate from are fairly underrepresented in the states um, in translation. Um, we don't do a lot of French or German or you know things that continental, continental Europe sort of translations, although some, uh, sometimes, um, depending on the, especially in terms of like researching sort of lesser known under, un, underground or avant-garde con, uh, contexts or traditions like the Belgian surrealist stuff. Um, but um, yeah, with, with the Eastern Europe series and the Latin American stuff that we've done or even Scandinavian or... Um, Japanese, and we're looking at trying to do more Southeast Asian um, uh, translations, um, contemporary work. Uh, so we're really interested in um, also broadening the context of U.S. American poetry conversations and um, thinking about a larger context for different kinds of experimentation and different kinds of work that responds um, to, politi to political situations um, and how that is really varied all, all, um, across a lot of traditions um, looking to sort of just broaden the horizons of readership and in, in the states which tends to be really solipsistic you know we have this stat of like our, our translation uh, our, our book industry publishes less than 3% in translation Whereas somewhere like Germany, it's like about 50% of the book market 
Obviously, that's partly because of American exports, <laughs> but we don't t- tend to import as much as we export. So it's part of, I think, a lot of small presses now are, are really kind of taking up the torch of translation. There's a couple of new fiction-oriented small presses that really do a lot of, of translation mm-hmm. and world literature. So it's it's nice that we're not alone in this, but there's clearly like a need to mm. look outside of the of US borders and also it's been awesome to meet people like Pablo Cachajan from mm. Buenos Aires and work with people who we haven't or ever met or you know like Winston Gonzalez from Guatemala um who you know establishing relationships across uh these uh divides and um and learning about like you know like there's bookstores in latin america now that are carrying some of these books and um you know finding out about how how small press networks operate in those places Mm -hmm. very differently and um what we share also so that's been of course incredibly rewarding and uh broadened i think our uh sense of of things Mm -hmm. as well how do you feel about the idea of like Ugly Duckling Press as something that's also alive? Because you, you mentioned before like the um, the effort that you're doing to work with um, writers. I don't know mm-hmm. the term used exactly, but people who come in and are sort of engaging as an artist with Ugly Duckling mm-hmm. Press, not just as a publishing vehicle, but um, oh, our apprentices apprenticeship right. program. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe could you talk about that in uh, like and 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 how that feeds into your larger creative process as a yeah I mean I think that there's also the sort of um, the larger community that we engage with and like our you know I th- I'm thinking specifically of like book fairs and things mm-hmm. like that and um, and seeing people like respond to what we're putting out um, and just sort of being open to you know people who are coming up to us just to Mm. sort of be like what is it that you do Mm. um and it feels like our community is very expansive um and only gets more expansive um which means that there are a lot of young people that are really interested in just sort of seeing what this is and kind of come to us sometimes Mm. with an understanding of what a small press is um and what a non-profit kind of independent press Mm. is um which is slightly kind of a different thing Mm -hmm. But, um, and some people are just sort of like, I just want to learn and, and sort of be around. And the tactility of the space is really important in that. Yeah. Um, we try to incorporate like uh, some letterpress training as much as we can feasibly do um, and show people how to like handset type and show people how to sort type um, and show people how the machine runs. Um, in addition to the sort of like administrative stuff that needs doing all the time, um, but also being very like encouraging of people. Mm. Once we show you something, like you should make use of this space um, and think about ways to interact with it yeah. in that way, um, which was something that I connected with when I was an apprentice very much. <laughs> like I just I felt like I could go over there and just like observe someone for an hour, um, and That's there good. was space for that kind of interaction. Um, yeah, and you quickly yeah. started learning typesetting, and then like not only digital typesetting, but handsetting and and designing, and and actually make yeah. you know then learning how to print on the Heidelberg, which isn't you know something that is 
especially in our age, I think it's really kind of a hard thing to, uh, it's it's hard for people who are used to working at the screen and at yeah. the keyboard to like interact with a machine that is so yeah. analog. I'm just really <laughs> interested to know like, well, what do those knobs do? And like, <laughs> I really, I'm actually, I, I want to see like how it how it functions. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, it, it was really powerful to me being an apprentice. And I mean, I came in not knowing anything about letterpress or okay. like what type was really. I had no idea. So I was really doing this for the first time, and it was very exciting. And sometimes, I mean, people come in with differing levels of knowledge. Sure, um, sure. But showing people that there's, like, that you can make something yeah. tangible yeah. and that it's that you can sort of, like, in a way, like, take back that means of production, yeah. which I think is um, totally. runs through the ideals um, of the press, is, is very powerful, especially for like you know we've brought in some high school groups mm. um and showing them and want to do more in like education and teaching people about like the fact that this exists <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because yeah i mean for me i had no idea i didn't even know that there would have been a any kind of industry or space for it in the literary landscape i mean a book was just it's just a, an object right it's mm. not really um intentionally created but uh, there's a lot of intention here. <laughs> right on. Yeah. yeah. And I think the apprentices, I mean, I think we're doing an interesting thing, which is that you, there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of publishing uh, internships, right? But, you know, and you can go go into those internships and then, like, get fed into, like, the normal corporate publishing world. Um you probably won't encounter a letterpress <laughs> or any production or any pro yeah some some maybe some like um like in design and right. you know but the nice thing here has been the combination of those things and also it's not just the sort of teaching of publishing but rather the teaching of small press publishing mm. which in requires people to do a have a lot of tasks rather than one specific or you know kind of more um streamlined focused task which is usually the case in larger publishing because you either you're in contracts or you're in the production um on the production team or in the in editorial or in marketing yeah so here there's like people really learn a lot of different modes and they also kind of hopefully get a chance to experiment in mm. in with a lot of different um kinds of from you know from social media to hand setting type or you know um and learning how to like write write publicity copy in a way that you know the UDP does things a little differently from a commercial publisher and learning how to write grants um um but also thinking about or maybe hopefully sort of by osmosis learning about um small press traditions and um kind of politics of small press as well like why are we doing this yeah, not yeah, only yeah, how the decisions and the thinking yeah. that goes into that decision making yeah, yeah, i think yeah. they're very curious about uh just to like just the collective nature of it um and knowing like well when you write a grant like you know what what are you gonna say about like your goals or uh, whatever um and like how are you thinking about like uh you know budgeting and because uh -huh. like even that is like a something that requires a lot of like collective thinking i would say sure, sure. whether that's just the administrative group or not um 
Yeah. So I think that they see a lot of not only like the sort of decision making happening, like as it's happening, um, but the way that we're thinking about it, the sort of like yeah. it, it gets kind of meta. <laughs> um, sure. And just sort of being around for that. Um, they're mm-hmm. here two days a week, which I think is a good amount of time just to sort of like and, and for a year. They're here for a full year. They get to see every season, really. They get to see when a book, the books are being made and designed, and then they get to see when they get here and they're a finished thing, or the stages of production where we need to print a cover and then send that, and like what goes into that thinking, like why, why, what changes uh, the decision between doing letterpress or doing offset printing, for example, and like mm-hmm. how that, they're very curious about that, um, mm. yeah. Well, I, I also just see these books uh, here at Ugly Duckling Press, and it feels like, okay, well, actually, this is um, moving. I mean, there's always, the small press tradition has always remained quite strong in different parts of the world. Um, but I, I, I think the narrative around a book is, okay, well, uh, it's going to get out. There's this sort of like, very invisible technical process that uh, is done by invisible people um, in invisible places. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. you're visibilizing that in, 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 mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's part of the, the form. I feel like that's pretty important, especially mm-hmm. right now. And bringing yeah. in um, a big part of our activity is um, working with volunteers, not um, our volunteer editorial collective but volunteers from our like larger community yeah, who yeah, come yeah. and they help us uh like bind some of these books oh, really? um cool. this book was handbound and that's with the help of volunteers oh, nice. and people sort of seeing the the tangible visible uh parts of you know you you have the interior of a book and you have to take it and put it in the cover <laughs> physically and then you have to make sure they sure, stay sure. together yeah. like that's just seeing that's how that happens yeah. and we get a lot of people come in here and um, and you know, or like they want to help us collate um, or fold things, um, and we try to incorporate handmade aspects um, yeah. in these books whenever we can. Um, wow. Like whether that's an insert or a little drawing yeah. or the binding yeah. or just um, like folding things. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of like thinking very intentionally about mm-hmm. what we can do to um, not just you know go from it's on the computer and now it's it's here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's like just point A to point B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're both also uh, writers or editors or uh, engaging with creative work, not just as a product uh, here at the Ugly Duckling Press uh, publishing um, institution, (laughs) Uh, but also as as artists. So um, what does that mean for you in terms of your own process and where you're at? at this moment also if you want to shout Mm. out anything you're working on please do (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah we we definitely talk about the pamphlet series (laughs) we've been working closely on that yeah um uh but yeah i mean it's hard now after for me after many years of doing both kind of the publishing side of things and the editing side of things hard for me to distinguish Mm. between them you know uh and i'm finding it uh more and more important to think about that connection of um, for uh, what this kind of publishing is for what small press or 
what I might call like editor run publishing where an editor is doing the work of publishing and not just the sort of sitting in like a quiet office where they have a manuscript <laughs> and some mm-hmm. and marking it up mm-hmm. um, but also like involved in uh, you know lots of different things design or just like counting paper for a cover or you know or working with uh, collaborating with others on different aspects uh, writing um, writing a grant or writing the marketing copy or whatever you call it um, getting you know conceptualizing the book as well as editing the text so that to me is like a pretty you know it's like a creative and then and then planning the event and making a postcard for the event on the letterpress or whatever so like all of that is so integrated that it's hard for me to separate editing from publishing and um i mean it it would in, in a different context it would be very separated um editors would make the decision and the, the other people would act you know would make the product actual and like f- make sure it's economically um you know doing its job for the publishing house but uh uh and aside from that i think that all of those processes have really affected me as a writer because first of all you get to talk to a lot of other writers and work on their texts and propose things that they do or don't want to do with their manuscripts um, um, also conceptualizing the book with other people has helped me like think about what is it that I want to do in my own writing as far as it what it becomes or what kind of object it might become or what does it have to, how does it relate to the book object um, so that's that's been really generative for me, but maybe like um, that seems almost more instrumentalizing than it needs to be because it's really more um, about the way that social engagement changes mm. one's writing habits, and you know the writing tends to come. You know, it's hard to prioritize when you're involved in so many other people's projects, <laughs> but. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think this, the fact of our collective, and it, you know, it's it's changed a lot. You know, you knew some of the people that are no longer part of the collective, but are still kind of satellite friends and sometimes collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the idea of collectivity itself kind of moves moves us away from thinking of the individual. Um, work or the individual author is something kind of like some kind of romantic genius idea and Mm. moves us toward thinking about the author as producer as Benjamin might say or like Mm. the idea of work or um, labor labor and uh, Mm. um, and the fact that the book is part of a social process Mm. um, and a and a industrial process as well right so Mm. um, that it um, touches upon different spheres of activity um, in order to become a book. Um, so that, to me, is very, it's sort of, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's heartening because it makes that whole process of writing a much less lonely one. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, the import of the work, as you, know, you were talking about Latin American poets in relationship to po- political Situations of political crises, or um, or or just um, 
political progressive thinking um and yeah you can you you can't have that unless you have a sort of social space around the writing a readership uh engagement a conversation yeah. um a physical object that says something about the politics and aesthetics of the writer and the publisher and where, how it's positioning itself. Yeah. Um, those, those things are, yeah, interestingly linked for me and that keeping that kind of consciousness around is not always easy, but, um, but as Sarah was saying about apprentices, like people are curious, like, well, how are these just, and, and, and hearing, um, the kind of process of thinking through things on the fly often um, while trying to maintain that consciousness. Um. I think we're, I mean, we're part of a history of the sort of writer-publisher tradition of small press um, Mm. where I think, I mean, I would say probably all of the people on our collective are also doing writing work and that it's, it's, it becomes very closely linked to the, the types of things that you look for, the kinds of writers you want to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that in the beginning, and even still today, it was sort of writing with people and making books of our friends, you know, and people mm-hmm. who were closely just in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of circle has expanded to be a lot more people now, but it's kind of the same mm-hmm. idea of um, that closeness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, we're always sort of thinking, I'm kind of um, clinging to the word institution that you said a few minutes ago, because I think we're thinking a lot, especially in the last couple of years, of like, what it, like that we kind of are an institution, and how we're part of not just that sort of close community tradition, but how we are changing into something that is more well known now, um, and has more people involved and has more of a history and is sort of more becoming more of that institution. I mean, and we think a lot about like the professionalization of small press activity and, um, and independent presses and all of that. Um, so I think it feeds into the work. Um, and I mean, since I've gotten here, I have just sort of like met a ton of people who worked here previously or have been published uh, by UDP and were on the collective like 15 years ago and I, working and sort of writing with them is has been very much part mm-hmm. of my process. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just sort of like, yeah, um, it's a very close kind of scene <laughs> um, and feeds into my personal work, I would say. That conversation is important. Yeah, the conversation is important and just sort of um, just being around and hanging out. <laughs> Is a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. There's always some sort of reading or mm-hmm. book launch or um, you know thing like that. Um, reading series that happen around town, and you go and you see people, and you know maybe it's someone that you know I just worked with on a book or sure. something like that. Yeah, um, and we, then we have events here too in the mm-hmm. space. Oh, really? Yeah, we move this table, we move things around, we create, wow. we put chairs I'm trying to imagine through. It. We're sitting here. It used yeah. to be a little less cluttered. Yeah, well, we just put in new shelves, so things have been moving around a lot the last few weeks. But no, it's gonna normally be... there's like space to put chairs right here. Oh, right on. And the yeah. the person would read like kind of in oh, front of okay. the press there, wow. in front of the Heidelberg. And it would be you know two or three people. 
Yeah, and we record them. We have in conversation. Oh, that's so yeah, cool. We have like a little conversation. We have nice drinks, and then we and we record all of it. So that goes up on a free, like kind of sort of podcast type thing. Yeah. Archive. Yeah. Uh, SoundCloud thing. Um, that's kind of like a lot, and there's a lot of those. But yeah, just yeah. having people here in the space of production is interesting to have like the readers read, yeah. or the authors read, and the audience ask questions that's like ha- in the same space where the book was made. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Great. <laughs> it feels really honest because, like, one of the, I think one of the shifts we've seen in the last few years at the most extreme mainstream level, not just in book publishing, but in politics, in food production. There's this acknowledgement, it feels, that things can't be hidden, like, you know, and, and like, whether it's in production or in even personal issues or in politics, like, that there needs to be transparency. And, like, it's cool, like, that you would have an event in your place, like, mm-hmm. that I, res- I respect that. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that we also, like, give advice to a lot of people who are trying to do something similar they want to start a small press they want to make some books like where do you go to print some things you know and and making that transparent because it's sort of a there's an exchange um yeah a lot of sharing of yeah resources yeah resources information small there's a lot of solidarity with other small presses you know so it's not like it's not really a feeling of competition yeah um in the same way that there might be in a different kind of publishing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so people come in and other groups have used the space to use the cutting guillotine for paper or trimming chapbooks or use the table to bind chapbooks with their friends. Um, so like uh, like the idea that other presses, and sometimes we printed covers for other small presses. Nice. And so like just trying to share some of the equipment, um, make it useful. To the community is awesome. really good, yeah. and I, th- I think like that issue that Sarah has brought up is like, well, how do we deal with the fact that we're we've grown, we have a lot of responsibilities to a lot more authors, a backlist. How do we we have to like present a certain way to grants mm-hmm. to grant uh, granting organizations and pay the rent and be responsible in many ways, right? And be sort of professional about it and make sure that the safe is uh, 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 the space is a safe environment for the for the people who work here or the apprentices um, and those things like do push you into kind of more like toward professionalizing certain aspects of the mm-hmm. of the work and yet you know it's as you know it's a like just a pretty scrappy <laughs> there's a shared uh, sense of ownership, which I think this exchange of information is part of. And I think that we, even within the collective, there's a shared sense of ownership over like everything we put out. You know, it's not just about one person taking, making a name for themselves or something like that. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, um, you know, you just expand Respect. to become more um, inclusive. Mm-hmm. At least that's the hope. <laughs> yeah. but that is hard to explain to like a grant mm-hmm. funding organization or something you know like it's hard to explain what collective work that that is has some element of sacrifice in it mm-hmm. <laughs> um how that works in a professional context mm-hmm. right um and 
and mm. you find yourself, you know, it's, it's really good that we have a good bookkeeper who's consistent and we need that, those kinds of structures to keep going and also to like present to the world, the potential donors, like we can handle the finances, right? That's important to show so that you have to, in some ways, a small press has to show a lot of professional wow. face, but at the same time, it's readership is expecting this hand bound chapbook with a weird letterpress cover and paper and like yeah. <laughs> that that kind of doesn't you know doesn't really jive with professionalism and then internally just trying to still be open i mean Sanyal started because of just there being an interest on the part of editors to sort of like what if we started doing this like maybe i know some people whose work I want to put out. And this is the uh, Latin American Yeah, uh, yeah. Series. And sort of being open enough to, for editors to have that kind of autonomy to put forward new ideas and mm -hmm. these new series that we want to start on South a Southeast Asian writers, like mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and being kind of like trying to juggle the practicality of it and how we can fit it into schedules and how we can fund it, um, funding of it's very different in different parts of the world. So how to match that with like still allowing editors the autonomy. And I think that mm. we are doing a pretty good job. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a, it's on our minds a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of the everyday process. <laughs> uh, Ugly Duckling Press. Um, thank you so much, Matvai, and um, to Sarah for your time today and sharing your ideas. Um, it's cool to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to hear the sound of the Heidelberg? Oh wow, <laughs> that might be fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're we're gonna listen. We're gonna we're gonna. Oh, thank you. So we're, I'm just gonna keep this um, going, and this is this is a letterpress. Uh, Wow, okay. Letterpress printer. Wow. This is a slower setting. There's a lung over here. Yeah, it's a lung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. exactly right. <laughs> wow. I love the kind of interesting relationship of the... I love that whirring, too. I mean, it's really like it, it's breathing when, when it's uh, going. But yeah. then there's like the, the way the arm moves. There's a rhythm that has a really interesting relationship to the breathing of the machine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Anyway. <laughs> this is where... Um, at Ugly Duckling Press and, um, and here in Brooklyn. That was a conversation with Madvai and Sarah from Ugly Duckling Press, um, recorded in Brooklyn. You can find out more information about their project through uglyducklingpress.org. That was one of a series of interviews that I recorded um, in Brooklyn just before the pandemic hit. And it's the last one that I had saved, which I hadn't broadcast yet um, so was happy to share that with you here today um, this is Stefan Christoph and you're listening to Free City Radio uh, thanks for tuning in
Sticking with New York City, I wanted to play a piece of music uh, from a recent release uh, by the late David DePoris. Uh, this is an album called For the Birds and Children. Uh, David was a friend of mine uh, who unfortunately was murdered uh, about two years ago in Oakland. But I got to know uh, David in New York City um, around the same time I met the people from Ugly Duckling Press, uh, who you just heard from. Um, so I wanted to share a piece of music by David DePoris. Um, his family and friends have gotten together to release a um, series of his recordings. Um, and uh, it was released this year. I'll share a piece uh, by David. I'll just say that he was a wonderful person, have a lot of really meaningful memories with David in New York, uh, joining demonstrations against war together, um, sharing the stage at the Tonic Club that was on North Folk Street in the Lower East Side at the time. Um, this is a beautiful uh, song that David wrote called Swan King in the Snow.
That was Swan King in the Snow by David DePoris here on Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Free City Radio comes at you every week. Um, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, please let your friends know. Please let your friends know about the show. And um, to go out today, I'm going to share a piece of music with you by Secret Pyramid. This is from their most recent release, Embers. <laughs> 